Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, Grant Memorial. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are thrilled that you have joined us today, uh, whether that is in person or online, as we continue to walk through our study of the first book of the Bible. Now, I will just point out that uh, our young adults are on a retreat right now, so there's about 25 courtside seats uh, right here that are available, so if anyone wants to come up free of charge, and if this was a Jets game, you guys would be crawling all over each other to get up here. I don't... Don't know what, uh, look at this, hey, all right. (laughs) Thanks, Amber. I'll I'll give you what I promised later on, okay. But uh, this morning, uh, the rest of us, as the young adults are off uh, learning and being challenged uh, in the word of God themselves, this morning we pick pick up where we left off last week, discussing the final non-negotiable when it comes to the creation narrative. Remember uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about the five things that if we read Genesis 1, we must leave with. And so we get to the last one of those, the the fifth non-negotiable out of Genesis 1-1. And for those who were here last week, I had already let the cat out of the bag um, so that you could sleep at night, so you could finish your list. Uh, But as a reminder, that fifth non-negotiable is that humans were created uniquely. Humans were created uniquely. I helped you out by circling it on the screen just to make it stand out that much more. But this is a truth that is essential to what Genesis 1 teaches. Uh, Last week, we read through the six days of creation in full as we saw God provide form to the earth and then fill it each day, setting out to complete a different task. And so on day one, by way of recap, we saw that God created the concept of light and separated it from the darkness. Then he he, uh, provided form to the earth by separating the waters and the sky. On day three, he created land and vegetation, which was then separated from the gathered waters to provide an environment within which life could exist. On day four, God began to fill what it is that he had formed, creating the sun, moon, and stars to govern Earth's days. On day five, he filled the sky with birds and the seas with fish. And on day six, God created animals to fill the land and live on its vegetation. But day six ends, you'll notice there's something deficient uh, in the list today. Day six ends with a very unique and distinct act of creation that is both substantially and procedurally different than everything that has happened before. So uh, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1 as we take a look together to see just what that is and just what it means. Now, depending on your Bible, uh, we're picking up in verse 26. You may just be on the second page of your Bible now. Maybe not. I'm not sure. But we're going to read Genesis 1 starting at verse 26 all the way to verse 31. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today that as we encounter it, that words would jump off the page and into our minds, into our hearts, into our lives. Amen. So, as I mentioned already, something is different here at the end of day six. And the first indication that this part of the text is different than what had come before is that the narrative changes from the third person to the first person. Did anyone notice that? The entire text so far has referred to God as God, with the account being told by an outside narrator about what God did. But then when we get to verse 26, we move to hearing God's own voice in the matter. Right? This small section is from the perspective of God himself. And so immediately we see that the account of the creation of humans is much more intimate, is much more personal than the rest of creation. Now, not only are these words in the first person, but they're in the first person plural. God doesn't say, let me make mankind in my image, but rather we read, if you notice, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, in verse 26. So what's going on here? Why would God say us when referring to himself? Well, some scholars suggest that God is simply using the royal we, like a king saying we when speaking in an official capacity about the country when they actually mean I because it is only they who can accomplish the action. But friends, I believe that more is going on here than just that. You see, this is the first glimpse that we receive of a Trinitarian God. A God that is himself a community made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but who are one in essence. And as we read through the rest of the scriptures, we see this Trinitarian view of God confirmed and reiterated along the way. And while this could be an opportunity to unpack the concept of the Trinity in full, this is not actually the main thrust of the text, and so we aren't going to set up camp here, aside from pointing out the relational nature of God and the personal participation of each member of the Trinity when it comes to the creation of humans. And so what we have here is a sort of divine conversation amongst the persons of the Trinity, amongst God's self, as God sets out to create something unique and special for a purpose. And so this shift in the narrative to a personal tense is one sign in the text that the creation of humans is unique, that something has changed. Well, another indication is that, or that God created humans distinct from the rest of creation, is in what God sets out to do with this particular creation. Verse 26 said, Let us 
create mankind, what? In our image, in our likeness. And verse 27 continues, so God created mankind in his own image. This, friends, is what makes humans unique. Imago Dei, or in the image of God. Out of all of creation, nothing else is said to be in God's image. Everything else is simply a conception and creation from the mind of God, but human beings, the text says, are modeled after God himself. Church, this is a huge deal. Now, many have speculated just as to just what this means, how specifically we are like God, especially in ways that the rest of creation is not. And, and while we cannot present anything exhaustive here, um, here are a few, briefly, of the capacities that God has shared uniquely with us. First of all, as humans, like God, we have the capacity to create. Right? We have the capacity to create. So this isn't uh, ex nihilo creation like we talked about last week, but, but we as humans can conceptualize things in a way that nothing else can. We can establish and attribute meaning and purpose to things from tasks and rituals to tools and infrastructure. Right? The, this is the reason why humans live in cities and alligators don't. Right? Another characteristic that humans share with God is that we can communicate. And while there are other animals in the world that can communicate in basic and primitive ways, nothing in creation has the ability to verbalize thoughts and emotion and to articulate with precision like humans can. Next, humans can discern things. We can discern in ways that nothing else in creation can. Similar to God, we can identify right from wrong, right? This is a big deal. We can identify right from wrong. And although this is skewed at times, we can make moral judgments and act based on these judgments beyond simple instinct and often in opposition to our simple instincts. In a similar way to discernment, humans can rationalize, right? We can understand, learn, internalize, experiment. We can question, ponder, imagine, and idealize, which tells us the significant complexity of the human mind. Humans can also empathize in a way that uh, none other in creation can. Like God, we have the capacity to care, to place ourselves in others' shoes and even lay down our own best interest, that which would be better for me, for the interests of others. And finally, another way that humans are like God is in their freedom. Of course, we do not have the same freedoms as God, but we do have free will, which allows us to make decisions, not simply in the day-to-day, -day, but regarding purpose, regarding allegiance and regarding worship. So those are just a few brief, few of the ways that, that we see this truth of Genesis 126 proven that we have capacities similar to God that are limited to the human race. And notice that these are not simple steps up from the capacities of the rest of the animal kingdom. 
right? The, the capacities that human have in all of these areas are immeasurably greater than anything else in creation. Humans are a unique and special creation who resemble our creator in a way that no other creating, created thing even comes close. And it's, it's really important, church, that we understand this. Humans are not simply one of God's creations. Humans are God's magnum opus, according to this text. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, his greatest achievement. Ephesians 2.10 declares that, that we are God's handiwork, or as I believe is better translated, we are God's masterpiece. Humans are the piece de resistance, the grand finale of this text. That which all of creation was building towards. That which the rest of creation has been subjugated to. And that which, when added to the sum of creation, our text says, changed God's self-evaluation from it is good to it is very good. Now church, this is hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? That we are God's prized possession? Just punch in people doing dumb things on Google and you'll know what I mean. But according to Genesis 1, in God's eyes, the stars, the galaxies, the vast expanse of land and sea have nothing on you and nothing on me. If you are here today, and you have ever felt worthless or unimportant, please let the words of creation convince you otherwise. You are a masterpiece. You are beautiful. You are valued. You are loved beyond what you can ever know. You are a priceless creation, an original designed by the master artist himself who has put a little bit of himself into each and every one of us. Friend, you are Imago Dei. Now, if this is true, what does it mean? Right? What are the implications for how we are to view ourselves and the world if humans have been created specially and in the image of God? Well, the first implication of Imago Dei is that humans have purpose, right? Humans have purpose. Look again at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creations that move along the ground. Did you catch the hinge point in that verse? There was a so that in there, right? God, in this conversation, deciding to create humans, offers a reason for their creation or a task with, that they are ought to accomplish, right? God has just finished creating the earth and filling it, and he decides to create representatives of himself, those made in his image, what? To take care of his creation. As T. Desmond Alexander writes, at the heart of the divine plan for humans is the idea that they should rule over the earth as God's vice regents. Friends, we have a significant task to represent God on this earth and to rule in a way that he would rule. 
right? That's what being an image is, a representation of the real thing. You see, just as a, a conquering king or emperor would establish governmental authorities in the places that he conquered, and, and he would set up government authorities with the expectation that they would govern as if it were the king himself governing. Well, humans are tasked to govern as God himself would. That's why he's created us in his image. Church, this is significant. Because I, I think that our default position, if we're honest, is to view ourselves as consumers in this world, isn't it? To take what we can get, to enjoy life while we can, to build our own little kingdoms that make us happy. And while we should enjoy the world that God has created, friends, we miss a significant point of our existence if we miss the work we have been tasked to do, the work that we have been kindly invited into by God. As pastor and author John Mark Comer points out, he says, God could have made all humans from the dust like he did with Adam, but he chose to work through humans, through marriage and family. God could have just made food fall from the sky like he did with Moses in the desert, but he chose to work through farming, agriculture, and trade. God could have placed Adam and Eve in a city like he will in the New Jerusalem, but he chose to start them in a garden and gave them the task of creating civilization, community, and culture. Right? God invites us to be a part of what he's doing in the world, to be creative, creative and ruling ourselves. Right? God didn't simply create humans, he created partners in this way. Those who would represent him well and who could join him in the task of creating a world where he would be known and where all creation could flourish. Now we know how things have turned out. We haven't proven to be the best caretakers of God's world, have we? We haven't been the best rulers. We haven't uh, represented God perfectly. But that doesn't change the fact that ruling well is our God-given task, especially for those who call themselves his children. And so friends, one thing we need to leave pondering from this text is what role... Have I played, what role have you played in ruling God's creation well? How have you contributed to beauty in this world? How have you contributed to peace in this world, to human flourishing in this world? How have you cultivated spaces for God to be seen and worshipped in this world? And if these are hard questions to answer, then you might just have some homework to do, as do I. But the words of creation are clear. We have been tasked to, as verse 28 summarizes, be fruitful and increase in number and to fill the earth and rule over it. So church, how have we been filling the earth? How have we been ruling it? How have we done at partnering with God in governing all that he has made? Has our behavior been a good representation or reflection of our God? Is he just as a child carries the characteristics of their parents, 
a daughter has her mother, mother's eyes or a son has his father's sense of humor, we too should reflect the characteristics of the one who we are representing, the one in whose image we are made. May people say of us, they have their father's heart. They have God's love. They have the compassion of Christ. They're doing God's work the way that he would do it. May it be identifiable church who we belong to, who our father is. So as image bearers of God, we have been tasked with representing and partnering with God as we steward the world he has tasked us to steward. The second implication of Imago Dei is that human life is sacred. Human life is sacred. Back to verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Church, if humans are created in the image of God, as verse 27 says, then humans have intrinsic value, right? Which simply means that all humans have inherent worth and they have the right to life and dignity because they are made in God's image. So the value of human life is is not based on economic status. It's not based on race or gender. It's not based on ability or disability. It's not based on our usefulness to society. It's not based on convenience to our parents. It's not, use, it's, it's not based on popularity. It's not based on our moral uprightness, among other things. But human life is valuable simply because it is human life. Church, we believe that all humans are valuable. All humans are considered equal before God because they are each marked with the divine image. Which means that a biblical worldview fundamentally denies any sort of caste system that places individuals or groups of people within any any sort of hierarchy or grants human rights and privileges to some but not to all. This also means that a biblical worldview opposes the act of taking life. Because God is the one who has granted life. God is the one who has given it value. It is only God who ought to take it away. Now, there is a conversation to be had around a few potential exceptions, such as interventions to limit bloodshed of others or end injustices, but we're not going to get into that this morning. This morning's text is about the rule, not the exception, and what our text teaches us is that human life is valuable and is to be honored and considered sacred no matter what circumstances may arise. Church, know this. There is never a case where a human life should be considered disposable or dispensable. Can I say that again? There is never a case where a human life should be considered disposable or dispensable. And this view, church, is actually unique to a biblical worldview. You see, while while naturalists or or atheists would agree that human life is valuable, they don't actually have a good reason for thinking so within their worldview, right? Since to an atheist, humans are nothing but a series of accidents, there is no rationale for equality, for non-discrimination, because discrimination is actually good from a strictly evolutionary perspective, 
Right? This concept of, of human equality is undeniably a biblical invention based on this doctrine of Imago Dei. This is also why Christians have historically and rightly so opposed abortion. It is all rooted in the fact that we believe that all human life is valuable because all human life carries with it the image of God. And the biblical record affirmed by the way, by all modern scientific consensus, teaches that human life begins at conception. Scientifically, a zygote, which is formed with the joining of sperm and egg conception, is a living human cell holding the full set of chromosomes which contain the DNA of a fully unique human being. And while there is argument around abortion for other reasons, there is no debate scientifically that a zygote is both living and biologically human. We believe that humanness means that the image of God is involved. Now beyond this, from a biblical perspective, we read that God is already at work forming and lovingly crafting this human life. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw what my unformed body All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So the master artist is already at work and human life is already already undeniably present at conception, which is why we can't affirm the intentional termination of life which is being formed in the image of God. This is the same reason that we can't affirm euthanasia. Right? If an individual has the image of God upon them, there is no point in which that image is worn off or removed and therefore must be treated with dignity, respect, and the highest value for all of their days, just as with every human life. Now, as a pastoral note, we are simply unpacking the theology of life based in the Genesis text. And this is in no way a pronouncement of judgment on anyone who has walked these very difficult roads. If you have needed to bear a burden like this, we want you to know that you are loved, that you are accepted, you are welcome here, you are forgiven, you are welcome to receive healing and support as you seek to follow Jesus. The the same God who knits life together is the same God who restores brokenness and invites all of us to come to him. Which brings us to an important point in this conversation. Church, it's important to remember in this type of conversation that what defines a Christian isn't a list of what we do not believe, right? Or a host of things that we are against. Even though sometimes, unfortunately, our witness in the world may suggest that. But we gather as a people around not what we're against, but what we are for. And one thing we are for is human life because God is for human life. He designed us. 
He breathed life into us, as we'll read in the next chapter, and gave us capacity to live uniquely in his image in this world. Which, church, means that we are for life for everyone. Okay? Being for life is not simply about being against things like abortion or euthanasia. It is about seeing God in every human being and working to create flourishing in the world for all. So beyond our ability to debate and protest that which we are against, Christians should lead the way when it comes to care for the orphan and the widow because we value life. Christians should lead the way when it comes to caring for those with unplanned pregnancies. Christians should lead the way when it comes to justice and equity in our world. Christians should lead the way when it comes to restorative justice and care for the prisoner. Christians should lead the way in terms of care for the poor. Christians should lead the way in providing end-of-life care for the sick and elderly. Christians should lead the way when it comes to putting an end to racism, to bullying, to hatred in our world because we are for life, because every life is sacred and is to be honored, because every life has been created in the image of God, right? And while the parameters for life are from conception to natural death, it also means everything in between. Imago Dei means that we see value in every single life. And the third worldview implication of Imago Dei is that sex matters, now, I'm not referring to the command to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> Although if you're married and that is the application you want to take from this point this morning, I will allow it. But for the rest of us, what I mean in this instance by sex matters is that, that our text this morning affirms that biological sex is important when it comes to living out the divine image that God has placed within us. Take a look at, with me back at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We read here right off the top explicitly that God intentionally created male and female. And this, this male-female gender dichotomy is a part of God's intended design. And as we see in a few verses, in verse 31, God declares this, along with the rest of creation, to be very good. Now, further than that, not only is male and female a part of God's design, if we look closely at the text, we see that male and female are a part of what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. Right? In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Church, in our maleness and in our femaleness, we reflect the image of God. And that means a few things for us. First of all, it means that male and female are different. If this were not so, God would not have created two distinct genders. He would have created male, and that is all or female, and that is all. Now, we're not going to go through a list 
of how this is so. I'm not going to quote things from men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or, uh, or confirm any gender stereotypes which are typically more harmful than good. However, it is something for us to acknowledge that God made them male and female, and together they work to display God's image. Right? Neither man nor woman is a complete reflection of who God is, but together, in their differences, they represent him much more closely. Second thing that this means is that male and female are equal. Right? Male and female are different, but male and female are equal. We hinted at this earlier, but since both men and women are created in the same way, intricately and relationally knit together by God, and because uh, they equally, image, equally bear the image of God, they are of equal worth and equal value. And thirdly, God's creation of male and female means that male and female are exclusive. Male and female are exclusive. Church, there are no other gender categories presented in the creation text as God's intended best or that display the image of God. And this male-female dichotomy is intrinsically linked to biological sex, to our biological uh, design. As we see that God commands these two genders in the very next verse with the combined capacity to procreate to go and do so, meaning that these are biological men and women. And so this, this is important for us to understand, church, and to wrestle with because our culture has largely abandoned this truth and has embraced an open understanding of gender completely disconnected from biological sex. And, and this just continues to expand, causing mass confusion for those attempting to figure out who they are and what purpose they have. In fact, uh, Facebook alone has 58 gender options to choose from when creating or updating an account. Right? Tell me that that's not confusing for a young man, woman, boy, or girl. And that's not out of the ordinary. The advancing Western worldview on display in classrooms, Hollywood, and social media is that one's biology is simply something to be overcome in order to find one's true and authentic self rather than a meaningful indicator of who a person really is. Or in short, we're told that our biological sex is not a clue or an ally for us as we seek to live out, quote, who we really are. Now, there is so much more to say about this, but I don't want to leave the text. Right? We can get into how we got to this place as a society, why this is becoming so accepted in our culture, how we can lovingly walk with our neighbors and friends and family. And for those who are looking to explore this further, I encourage you to read a book called Love Thy Body, written by a woman named Nancy Piercy. And friends, I know I throw book titles and stuff at you quite a bit. I cannot recommend this book more highly than I do. If you want to continue this conversation, if you want to read, if you want to think deeply about this, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, is a great uh, place to start. But for, for today, I simply want us to know that there is no distinction between sex and gender in the biblical record. That our biological sex matters as we seek to live out our purpose as image bearers of the one who designed us intentionally. 
Now, I do want to acknowledge this morning the reality of gender dysphoria, which is the devastating tension that, that some live within, feeling like they're at odds with their biological sex. Now, I can't imagine what that must be like. According uh, to Stats Canada, the, the 2021 consens- or census identified this as uh, 0.33% of the population, or one in every 300 people. And church, each number represents real people created themselves in the image of God. And if we value human life the way that we say we do, we need to be a people and a place that loves and empathizes with anyone and everyone who is on that journey, providing a caring community and modeling to them that our primary identity for all of us comes from Jesus Christ. May we be a people who look like our loving Father in that regard. However, what I think we are seeing a lot more in our culture today when it comes to gender questioning, and the statistics bear this out, is less actual gender dysphoria and more social confusion as young men and women, boys and girls, try and find out who they really are in a culture that does nothing to help them in that endeavor. And it's here, church, where we can serve the next generation. We can serve our children well. We can speak into our community together by pointing our children to solid ground when the world around them is shifting. When the world around shouts different things at them each and every day about who they should be, about where to find their identity. As we'll see when we get to Genesis 2, we are not designed to navigate life, especially in a culture like ours, alone. And so let's not leave our children to figure it out. To, to find themselves without coming alongside them, affirming them in who they are and in who God has made them to be, both biologically and otherwise. You see, the scriptures, friends, are not hurtful or oppressive, as some might suggest. They are what gives us freedom and certainty in a world that lacks it. It's the truth of the scriptures given to us by a loving God that frees us, that lets us exhale in the midst of a storm that brews around us constantly. So let's tell our children what God has made clear, that they are loved, that they are special, that they have immeasurable Value that their body is a gift and not a curse from the Lord so that they can live in that freedom and participate with God as his representatives in the world. Again, friends, this is not simply what we are against as a church. This is about what we are for as a people and we are for living out who God designed us to be, knowing that he does not make mistakes. And the final implication of Imago Dei, of being created in God's image, is that humans have access to God. 
Humans have access to God. Old Testament commentator David Wilkinson says, the image of God means that we are sufficiently like God that we can have an intimate relationship with him. Think about that. The relational God of the universe who intimately knits humans together has created humans with the capacity to relate to him, to communicate with him, to walk with him, to know God personally. He didn't have to do that. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them. Now often we jump past that to what God says, but we can't miss the fact that he said to them. Friends, this is direct communication from God to humanity, from God to Adam and Eve. The eternal God whose voice shook the cosmos, bringing all things into being from nothing, opens his mouth and speaks and tenderly speaks blessing and direction to his finite creatures. God, this is wild. This text shows us how God initiates communication and relationship with humans. God doesn't simply create and then walk away, but he desires to walk with his people, communicating with them and working side by side as the partners they were created to be. What a kind and loving creator. And his speaking continues long after this text. In fact, it's, it's God's very nature to speak to his people. Church, God is a God who speaks. And as we'll see as the text moves on over the next few weeks, this turns into a two-way dialogue with Adam and Eve conversing with God in the garden. That's before, spoiler alert, they reject him and turn their backs on the relationship that he created them to have. But the voice of God does not go silent. God continues to speak. He continues to pursue his people, guiding them, leading them, protecting them, speaking to them both audibly sometimes and through mouthpieces called prophets. That is until he came in the flesh himself, speaking personally, earthly language out of a physical mouth, God himself restricting himself to merely bearing bearing the image of himself so that he could tell us about his plan to speak the words on a cross, it is finished, in order that we could speak freely and directly once again. Church, this is our God, a God who speaks and who invites us to speak and who has done everything he can to ensure that we will speak with him eternally when our work on this earth is done. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. And God, I pray that as we encounter it, we would be people who see a loving God in its words. Or that we would see your heart in every word of the scriptures. That we would know that you have created us uniquely, that you love us intimately, and you desire to walk with us daily. God, equip us to live 
as your image bearers in this world. That we would look more and more like you every day. And as a result of us being in the circles you lead us to, that those circles would look more and more like you as we reflect your image. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point, uh, we're going to move into communion. We can clap about that. Communion is a wonderful celebration, right? On the first Sunday of every month, uh, we celebrate what we've talked about, that God speaks and that God spoke words on the cross that it is finished. Now, if you're at home, I encourage you to grab some elements where you are uh, so you can participate with us. And for those who are here, if you haven't received the elements yet, uh, just raise your hand where you are and we'll make sure that people uh, come up and find you and uh, make sure you get those elements. Leave your hands up so they know uh, who they're providing this uh, for. But for the next few minutes, our worship team is going to play. And as they do, I invite you to reflect Right? We're not going to get you to stand. You can just remain seated. We're going to ask that you would reflect before partaking. And what I, what I encourage you to reflect on today is to reflect in, in thankfulness. To thank God for creating you. I don't know how often we thank God for that. Thank God for creating you. And thank God for putting his fingerprint, his image on you. And thank God for dying for you so that you can join him in his work in the world. Thank him for giving you purpose, meaningful purpose to participate in. And thank him for being available in anything and everything. And let's not forget to just thank God that we can thank God. He has given us the ability to communicate with him. And let's not lose sight of that. So let's thank God together as we reflect. Let's sit in the presence of God who made you, who loves you, and he does not make mistakes. Let's reflect now. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.